John has some some phrases that he repeats in his Bible. Uh, when I met, we, we hear about God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the refrain is used on many occasions. I just I thought I'd look it up. The God of Abraham, that phrase, occurs 281 times in 53 verses in the King James, that is, but including there are 17 of them that are exact, you know, the God of Abraham. The other uh, verses have uh, a combination, and uh, that goes all the way from Genesis through Acts for the exact uh, exact phrases, and the inexact phrases goes all the way from Genesis to Romans chapter 11. And you have the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 11 times. So God clearly wants us to remember him a certain way, and he had... The phrase God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel occurs three times. And you have the phrase that God who brought you out of Egypt. Uh, I'm not sure I could count that far. I didn't count all of them, but similar words to that. But God wants us to remember certain things, and he uses those, those kinds of phrases. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and be reminded of why we do what we're about to do in the sermon. First Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Then in verse 4, And they all drank the same spiritual drink, which they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Then in verse 11, and now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. So there are a number of lessons to be learned from the Old Testament and all those things that happened to Israel. And so this afternoon we'll, we'll do just that. Go back and look at three lessons we can learn from one of the accounts that God records in his Bible. And if you want a title for the sermon, it'll be three lessons from the book of Joshua. Now, we'll touch on the book of Numbers as well in recounting some of what I went through. Of course, there are lots of lessons to be learned from the account that Joshua gave and others edited after him. But this afternoon, we'll look at three lessons from the book of Joshua. Point number one, or the first lesson, that God blesses and supports those he chooses, that he chooses, to lead his people, something that we cannot, let's say, emphasize too much, to know that God is in charge of his church, Christ is in charge of the body, and watching over us, and he blesses and supports those that he puts in charge of the church, and we need to be very cognizant of that. Let's turn back to the book of Joshua, in chapter 1. 
In verse 1 it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Eternal, it came to pass that the Eternal spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So Moses has died, and as we know, that Joshua is given the mission of leading Israel into the promised land because Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. They granted the privilege of seeing it, but not go into it. Then in verse 5, to ensure Joshua, make him aware he was going to watch over him, God tells him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it in, meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will be have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I don't know. I, mean, I know that Joshua was a human being. But maybe, even though he was been assigned this duty, he found it mentally or emotionally a bit daunting, perhaps. But if we read verse 5, where he says, I will be with you as I was with Moses. That had to be a very reassuring statement. To be told that the way God had used Moses for the last 40 years to lead Israel, God was promising to be with Joshua the same way. We go back to Numbers 27, where this was, if you will, assigned. Joshua 27, verses 18 through 23. Remember I made the comment that God backs up those he chooses. And then verse 18 of Numbers 27. And the Eternal said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with you, man in whom is the Spirit, your special servant, and lay your hand on him, and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Eternal for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. He being told that the nation will now follow him wherever he went, whatever he did. 
So Moses did as the Eternal commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest, before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him. So he had been designated by God to replace Moses. And he's already told him, I'll be with you as I was with Moses. Let's go back to Joshua. Chapter 2 recounts the story of the spies going into Jericho and Rahab's protection of them. We'll refer to that right now. We'll just mention that in the next part, the next next, uh, lesson to be learned. So let's turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. Read verses uh, verse 5 and all the way through to part of verse 10. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Eternal will do wonders among you. Then Joshua, Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they, they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Eternal said to Joshua, So again, there's a moment of reassurance given here. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here, and hear the words of the Eternal your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. And I'll, I'll stop there. God promised here to exalt Joshua because he had had hands laid on him before the congregation and there had been the evidence given by Moses that Joshua was being chosen by God to replace him. But, you see, it's one thing to say those things. As they say, actions speak louder than words. But Joshua gives this instruction. This is what happens. And he goes on and then in verse 13 and the men of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half the tribe, I'm sorry, that's, that's chapter 4, in verse 13 of, of chapter 3. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the souls of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the eternal, the eternal of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was. When the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before them, that as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So here's a a river that's flooding over its banks, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still, and rose in a heap very far away toward Adam, the city that is before Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jordan. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Now, one can't read this without thinking about the Red Sea splitting. 
But think for a moment, most of these Israelites did not see that. For the last 40 years, they've been being born, being born and brought apart in Israel. And they only hear from those that have lived, they were 19 years and younger, pretty much. They only heard from them what happened at the Red Sea. Now, again, you're going to be told, or they were told, this is what's going to happen. When the priests put their, dip their feet in the water, the Jordan will stop flowing. And it will begin to stack up. Now, I didn't have to stack up, you know, 10 stories or 20 stories. Because it stacked up all the way back for miles. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever stood and uh, seen things where your mouth just kind of, your tongue, or your tongue hanging to the water, maybe your chin drops down and just gape at what's, what, what, what's happening here? And they began to see that, hey, this is, this is a pretty special event. Now, you get... Uh, two to three million people have to cross, <laughs> cross this river. Uh, it takes a while. And so, can you believe your eyes? What's happening? So, similar to the Red Sea, only the difference was obviously there was no wind blowing all night long the previous night. It's just the toad, the, the soles of the priest stand in the water, and the water stops. It starts going up. And, Israel being very carnal, obviously, they, uh, they'd be pretty stunned by that. So, they, uh, they're, they're quite surprised at, at what's happening and wondering much what, what exactly that means. Well, let's compare it back, let's go back to Exodus 14 and compare it to what happened at the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, verses 29 through 31, says, So the Eternal saved Israel. No, but 29. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Eternal and believed the Eternal and his servant Moses. So if Israel needed any more convincing after what had happened in Egypt, coming to the Red Sea and being delivered, having the sea open up, once again convinced them that Moses was indeed the servant of God and the one they should follow. Now, we know how carnal they were. They didn't last very long necessarily. But at the point these things happened, they were given this absolute sign that God was behind the man he had chosen to lead them. And they were willing to, to follow him for the most part with a lot of incidents in between. Let's turn back then to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 1.
Joshua 4, verse 1. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Eternal spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. And it's going to be in Gilgal. Uh, uh, the uh, commentaries mention about maybe could be 30 or 40 miles west of the Jordan. But cross over before the ark of the, of the eternal your God in the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel. That this day may be a sign among you that when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for memorial to the children of Israel forever. This was something that God did not want the children of Israel to forget, that that these now these uh, hundreds of thousands of, of Israelites who saw this fantastic miracle, something for some of them, the first time that these kinds of things happened to them. So they had to be quite impressed. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, reiterates here, And on that day the Eternal exalted Joshua. In the margin rendering there, exalted said, Made Joshua great, great in their eyes, in the eyes of Israel, Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So they stood in awe of Joshua, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. God had chosen Joshua to follow him, to follow Moses, and promised he would back him up, just as he had done with Moses, and did this very special miracle, very special example. Then in verse 19, Now, when the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal at the east border of Joshua, and those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Eternal your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you. As you had crossed over, as the eternal your God did, to the Red Sea. You heard about this, but just as it happened back 40 years earlier, this sort of thing happened again, which he dried up before us as we crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the eternal, that it's mighty, that you may fear the eternal your God forever. So again, verse 24 reminds us this is something that should impress us even today being mindful of God's power to perform the things that he did in backing up his chosen servant. One other example. Let's turn over to Joshua 10. I'm not going to give all the background to this particular occasion, but we'll read one section of it here just as a reminder because of what it says. Which it's phrased in verse 14. Read verses 5 through 14. Now, it says, Gibeon... Uh, one of the 
uh, Gentile cities had tricked uh, Israel and Joshua into a covenant, and so they could not destroy them. But they were now, let's say, sort of under the wing of Israel. So in verse 5, is therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the god of the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon, and made war against it. So you, they thought, you, well, you think you're getting away with something. No, now you're our enemy. And the men of Gibeon uh, sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal with all the mighty men. Then verse 8, And the Eternal said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Verse 9, And Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Verse 10, So the Eternal routed them, killed them with the great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the roads that go to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Akiza and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel that the Lord the Eternal cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Akiza, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed. And Joshua spoke to the Eternal in the day when the Eternal delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said to, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it before it or after it, that the Eternal heeded the voice of a man, for the Eternal fought for Israel. Now, there's nothing in there that gives us a hint that God inspired Joshua to say that. Joshua appeared to be just inspired, if you will, uh, but not verbally given the instruction, but said, Son, stand still. That's a pretty amazing statement <laughs> to simply call upon God and know that that was going to be done. He could say it and it not happened. It might be a bit embarrassing. But that's not what happened. He commanded the sun to stand still. And God backed it up. Now, I go through all of that simply to remind us where God chooses when he chooses his leaders over his people. He blesses them. He backs them up. He gives them wisdom. And the Israelites didn't learn that lesson through and through. Most of their conviction about Moses and about Joshua, and for the most part, it was intermittent, especially with Moses. They complained. They criticized. They rebelled. Rebelled against God and against Moses. Doesn't recount that the same way with Joshua. But nonetheless, they did not obey God in every way. We'll see that as we come to the third point. But 
We need to remember that God does back up his chosen servants. And our loyalty to God is manifested by him being willing to follow those chosen servants that God places over his work. And we have to be aware that God will back up his servants, the ones he's chosen to lead us. We're to follow them. And it's obvious by the fruit that he does in his work where God is working. And we have the responsibility then of being sure that we stay faithful to God by following those that he has chosen. Right. Second lesson. And this has to do with uh, learning the lesson or this uh, Israel not learning the lessons in terms of, of Moses, for that matter. But the older Israelites, the ones that were 19 years and younger, that had survived for the last 40 years, they had seen the miracles that God performed in Egypt to deliver Israel from, uh, the, and, uh, from Egypt and from taking them through the Red Sea. But, again, most of the Israelites there alive at that time had only heard about those things. So they were not necessarily remembering and one has to wonder whether or not even the older ones remembered all that well because of things that, that transpired. We'll refer to them here. But let's turn over to back to Joshua chapter 2. Just to pick up, I won't go through the whole story about Rahab and the spies, but focus on what is here, what, what she says, because what the uh, the... Younger Israelites, they say the 40 years and, and younger, uh, what they heard from those who were older, we, we might, we might call them today, we call it stuffs of legend. It's so fantastic miracles that just hard to believe. Well, I know you keep saying this happened, but we've never seen anything quite like that. Because you, you read from in, in Numbers, there is a place where, it was chapter, late, late part of Numbers, where you skip from about year three, all the way to the 40th year. There's not a lot of record of what, what Israel went through for most of those 40 years. So maybe they heard about these things, but they'd never seen them. But notice here in Joshua chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 4, where the spies had come in to, uh, to Jericho and to, to Rahab's uh, dwelling. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes. The men came to me because they were the other people from Jericho were looking for them. But I did not know where they were from. And it happened at the gate, as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as they had pursued them... Had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, therefore, the men lay down, and she came up to them on the roof. So, pick it up in, in uh, now to verse nine, and said to the men, "I know that the Eternal has given you the land." Now, it's been forty years; they've been wondering. I know the Eternal has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Because we have heard how the Lord, or the Eternal, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did very recently had done, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the eternal your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the eternal, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be that if we'll do, we will deal kindly and truly with you. And, of course, she followed on. She allowed them to go out. So the Israelites were not all that confident. We know what they did rebelled time and again in Israel, but or in Egypt. But here, this Amorite woman says, we know that you are dangerous. We know you're, God is with you, and we're scared. We're really frightened by what is going on. So they were very frightened. So over in Numbers 22, go back to Numbers. I mentioned we'd be looking at this. In Numbers 22, Verses 1 through 3. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So again, they they were witnessing what this, this mass of Israelites had done. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because the children of Israel. In verse 4, the last part of verse 4 is in Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. And he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of, of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of the people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they're settling next to me. So, they're, they're there and they, they, uh, the Amorites are frightened. They're scared. But they had not fully learned their lessons about what they should and should not do. In all the years that God had worked with them or Moses had led them, they had not learned the lessons they needed to learn. So let's go back to Numbers, just a couple of chapters earlier. In chapter, chapter 20. So we get the setting. This was in the 40th year. It tells us in Numbers 30, 33, 38 that this is the, the, 40, the, the 40th year. In verse, verse, verse 1, chapter 20. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month and the people stayed in Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there. So this is the first month, and we know from chapter 33 that this is the 40th year when they have come. So we find also in verse 28 that Aaron died there. In verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them 
on Eleazar, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and Israel mourned for Aaron thirty days. So here this is what's going on in the fortieth year before they are to go into the promised land. In chapter 21, verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor on the way of the Red Sea to go into the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against Moses. People spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread that the manna they were receiving. So the Eternal sent, spe- or sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Eternal and against you. Pray to the Eternal that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So this 40th year, the people rebelled against Moses and against against God in that sense. And then later in, in uh, chapter 24, or chapter 25, the account given here is that the Israelites commit harlotry with the Moabites. And the plague kills 24,000 people. Reminds one of Christ's statement in Matthew chapter 11. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 21, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. Talking about things that where God had, had performed all kinds of miracles. And so Israel had seen all kinds of miracles, and yet... They rebelled time and time again. So God now sets out to demonstrate his great power in behalf of Israel to deliver them from the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the whole, the whole incident here is that Israel coming into the promised land has resisted time and again to serve God, to do what he had wanted them to do and do to obey his laws and follow his will, and they had to suffer a long time to do that. So then we come to this this idea of personal responsibility and the let me make sure I lost my place here. Personal individual responsibility of doing the work of God. Let's turn over back to Joshua chapter 4. Verse 19. So now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took up out of the Jordan, they brought up to Gilgal. So it's time of, it's the time of the Passover. Then in Joshua chapters five and six, we have the account of 
the Passover in the Promised Land and the conquest of Jericho, but uh, told not to do, take the accursed thing, and they are now have to deal with the fact someone has not done exactly what he'd been instructed to do. In chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 16 and 18, Seventh time it happened, they were going around Jericho, when the priest blew the trumpet that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Eternal has given you the city. In verse 18, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. So there's a problem coming. So they don't know what happens. We find over in Joshua chapter 7 then, we'll pick it up in 7, verse 1. And the children of Israel committed the trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Eternal burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, and but they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down at the steep descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then in verse seven, and Joshua said, "Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all?" to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 10, And the Eternal said to Moses, or to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and they have stolen it have been stolen, both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they had become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing among you. So Ai defeats Israel, 3,000 men. They thought it was going to be just a minor, uh, a minor struggle to take over this, this small city, small town. But God had seen what had happened, and they did not work out the way they planned. So we'll pick up the story in verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the clan, he took the, the family of Zerhites, Zerhites, 
He brought the family of the Zarites, man by man, and Zebdi was taken. Then he brought his household before, household man by man, and Nacon, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the eternal God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me what you have done. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the eternal God, the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are hidden in the, in the earth in the midst of my tent which the, with the silver under it. So he admits to the problem. He's, he's stolen something, take, taken for his own sake, and God says he cursed all of Israel for that and Many men died because of it. So then in verse 24, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor. And he said, Why have you troubled us? The Eternal will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, that they burned, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And so the Eternal, in verse 26, so the Eternal turned from the fierceness of his anger. So others uh, had to know, family members had to know what what Achan had done, and so the whole family suffered, and all of them were held accountable. So we find that here this, this promised land that they were going into, led to immediate problem. So had to be addressed. And this was during the Passover season. And so we find in that uh, the, the, the element here of them sinning was a big deal. So we turn over to Joshua. Uh, make sure I'm where I'm at. Where I'm, uh, Joshua 24. This happened, of course, during the Passover time. Joshua 24, verse 14, says, Now therefore fear the Eternal, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, serve the Eternal. And then in verse 23, he says, Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline incline your heart to the eternal, your God. So there's, during the Passover season, this had had to be done. So what he's pointing out here is this idea that they had to change. Reminds one of what God tells them in Corinth about the Passover time that uh, they had these uh, these idols that uh, they had to get rid of. It tells them to put these things away. We find over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 what God is dealing with, with, with Achan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
He did not want Israel to be polluted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed and might be taken away from you. So we have this during Joshua's farewell address. He talks about changing, coming out, being different, pass over time. And Paul reminds them here then in verses six, in verse six through eight to the Corinthians, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Israel had to learn that they had to get rid of the sin. And being rid of Achan and Achan's family, that was one way of God getting that point across to them. Reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, that we are contributing individually to the body of Christ, that we recognize our individual responsibilities. And you had in in Israel at the time, you had this one man who polluted all of Israel. And God had to get rid of all of that because that, that family, entire family, and everything about that family, apparently they knew it would be hard to hide what he had done. He had the garment, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, if he were to wear this garment from Babylon, uh, that might be a dead giveaway. I uh, don't know if they had anything like that with them at that point. And so he had taken something and was hiding it. He had gold. He had, he had precious uh, metal and this garment. He had lusted after it. And God wanted to get rid of that sin. And so we find in Corinthians the same thing, that we, we are individually responsible for the church, contributing to the, the, the work that we do. In Ephesians chapter 4, we find just in one verse, verse 16, breaking into the middle of a thought that Paul has given here. It says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We're each contributing to God's church, to God's work, and how we conduct our, our private and personal lives. The body of Christ as a whole is doing the work, but how well the work is done is affected by how each one of us lives our lives, 
how effective our prayers are, how close our relationship is with God, so that he, in fact, hears our prayers. Every, the whole body, fit, joined, and knit together, we contribute according to the effective working by which every part does its share. You and I, each one, each one of us has a responsibility to contribute to the work of God. Not only in what we give to the work, but in what we pray about and how we conduct our lives so that our conduct shows that God is part of it, it's the most important thing in our lives and that we have some influence in what God will do in managing the church. It's our individual duty to nurture the church, to nurture the work, our individual duty to serve and obey his law. But we do this by prayer, we do it by righteous conduct, and, of course, we do it by tithing. All of us have this responsibility to support the work in tithes and offerings. And we know that it's been mentioned that maybe some people don't don't tithe as they ought to. And God says that's going to affect his work because what we pray and what we do has sway with God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we tithing faithfully? Are we praying daily for God's work so that we, in fact, are contributing to doing that? Our individual responsibility in doing the work, just like it was the individual responsibility of all the Israelites to go in and fight the battles they were to fight, and in this case of Achan, not take of the accursed thing, not take any of those things that were to be set aside and reserved for for God to use in the ways he saw fit. We have a right, we have a responsibility to do the work in the same way that Israel was responsible for doing the work of God and going into the promised land. So what, and we go through this, figure out what God wanted us to do in looking at these lessons. We talked about supporting those leaders that God has chosen, and by the fruits we see that God is leading them. We can ask ourselves in this day, how effectively are we praying for those that God has chosen over us to lead his work? How willing are we to follow their example, their dedication, follow their instructions, follow their leadership in the work? You and I have this grave responsibility to hold up the hands of those that God is using to lead the work, to support them, pray for them, and follow their example and serve in his work as they and follow them as they take us through the years ahead. Secondly, the point I made there was we should not allow the world to distract us. Israelites allowed some of them to do that, to distract us from our calling and doing the work, even as we approach the very end of this age, that there were some of the Israelites who wanted to do their own thing. Some of them did not want to follow Moses, did not want want to serve Israel in that regard. And thirdly, we need to remember that we individually, individually contribute to the work of God, that we are responsible for doing the work. We have leaders. We have those that God is guiding and choosing, or has chosen and is guiding 
to see what we do and where we go and when we do it. But we have a responsibility of contributing to the work by our personal conduct. Our conduct, if you will, gives us influence with God. God will do things because we ask, because we're servants, we're obedient servants. God will do things for us because we are serving him and obeying his law. So our personal conduct, our contact with God, has direct impact on doing his work. And we saw from the examples that were there that those who were following following Joshua, doing what they're supposed to do, God led them into the promised land. He used them accordingly. You and I have a great responsibility of following the leadership of God's church and contributing individually to its success in getting our work done.